Hey everyone, this is the second episode of a three-part story we're calling Out on the Ice. So if you haven't listened from the beginning, go back to part one and start from there. Previously on Blind Landing. No amazing male athlete ever was really capable of changing the reputation of the sport. Once figure skating got the feminine label of being a quote, girl sport, there was no going back. For decades, there's been a stereotype about male figure skaters being gay, but that doesn't mean the ice rink has always been a safe space for queer people. I compartmentalized a lot of stuff and it wasn't a great thing, but I had to do it. In part one, we heard about how figure skating earned its reputation as a gay sport and took you through its most deeply closeted years up until the early 90s. And that, that's when the closet doors started to crack open. I'm Ari Saperstein. I'm Chris Schleicher. And this is Blind Landing. Out on the Ice, part two. Welcome to our continuing coverage of the 1996 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Later tonight, we'll have the men's short program. And that will the year? The stage for our 1996. We'll the, the place? San Jose, California. The event? The U.S. National Figure Skating Championships. And the skater that everyone is talking about, the one who has a shot to win gold, is the last person anyone expected. And in his seven previous appearances here at the Nationals, he has never stood on the medal podium. Trying to do that for the first time from San Jose, here is Rudy Galindo. So Chris, who is Rudy Galindo? And why was it such a surprise that he was in contention to win the 96 Nationals? Back in 96, he was just a skater on the outs and had faced setback after setback in his personal life. My, you know, my mom was in and out of the hospital because she was sick, mental health issues, and my dad was gone. And um, my second coach, Jim Hewlett, and my uh, third coach, uh, Rick Inglacy, passed away. This is Rudy from an interview he did with the Skating Lesson podcast. In the years leading up to 1996, Rudy had lost two coaches, his dad and his brother. And it all coincided with a skating career that was, quite frankly, sputtering to an end. Rudy was 26, ancient by figure skating standards. He had success as a pair skater with Christy Yamaguchi in the 80s, but after that partnership came to an end, he never quite reached the same peaks as a solo skater. In his seven appearances at the men's event at Nationals, Rudy Galindo had placed 8th, 10th, 11th, 8th, 5th, 7th, and 8th. Okay, basically, sounds like you would not take the Vegas odds on Rudy Galindo. He was a long shot, to put it mildly. And by 1996, Rudy had stopped training and was ready to retire. He was making ends meet as a skating instructor at the local rink. So as Rudy tells it, it was kind of a fluke he ended up competing that year. I was coaching classes and um, riding my bike because my car broke down. And I just remember riding back and forth and teaching some of my sister's kids. And I just remember getting off the bike and looking at them. They had they put up the poster. It said San Jose Nationals. It just so happened that the 1996 National Championships were being held for the first time ever in Rudy's hometown. And I thought, oh, that would be fun for all my um, friends and, and my family to actually come and watch me. I, I talked to my sister. I'm like, should I try to go for that national since it's in our, in, the, in our backyard, basically? Rudy figured, what the hell? 
why not give it one more go? So I just remember um, training really hard and just being focused and, and not having any pressure on me. You know, that, that was the one thing that was really good for me. It's like, I didn't think I could win it. I was, uh, my mindset was like, you know, no big deal. Rudy Galindo went into the 1996 U.S. Figure Skating Championships with nothing, and I mean nothing, to lose. You know, I was eighth the year before, and there's no, I wasn't in the media guide. I, there was nothing. Uh, not in the media guide. What, what does that mean? As in... U.S. figure skating wasn't even advertising or promoting Rudy's presence at the 96 Nationals because it seemed so unlikely that he'd medal. And as Rudy's getting ready for the competition, right before the 96 Nationals, this book comes out, Inside Edge by Christine Brennan. And in it, Rudy talks about being gay, not knowing he'd still be competing by the time the book got published. So by skating at the 96 Nationals, without planning it or thinking about it, Rudy ends up being the first openly gay U.S. figure skater. He is the first U.S. male competitor to come out of the closet. Word is, it's hurt him with the judges, even when he skated well. Do you feel that your sexual preference was in the back of their minds? Oh, definitely. I always thought that there was some discrimination. He was representing something that was completely different, you know, than anything I had really seen as like acceptable skating, you know, male skating in the U.S. So that was that was really, really special for me. This is Derek Delmore. Derek was just a teen, still in the closet, and it was his first time competing at the senior level. And he was taken aback by how good Rudy looked in practice, wondering to himself, could this guy actually win? Well, you know, I had been watching him in practice all week um, and, you know, he looked like he couldn't miss. He was like so consistent and he, he looked like he was just loving every minute of being out there. But like, it was like, well, what, what are the judges going to do with this? What are the officials going to do with this? Because is he going to be rewarded for it, you know, or are they going to give it to somebody who, you know, fits the mold of, of you know, what they what they've been preaching to us for all these years? Todd Eldridge leads at the, this point. Dan Hollander is in second. Rudy Galindo in third coming into the free skate. Going into the long program, Rudy's in third. And the last skater to go. Which I can tell you from personal experience is the worst, most nerve-wracking thing. Especially at a big competition like U.S. Nationals. I know that when I was competing, I couldn't even watch the skaters before me. I have literally vomited from pure adrenaline while waiting to go on. And under that pressure, Rudy starts with this incredibly difficult combination, a triple axle, triple toe. That's the best, that's the best movement in this men's competition. Rudy nails it. Clean landing, great flow coming out of it. You can hear commentator Dick Button at a loss for words. And right after, Rudy goes into another triple triple. <laughs> triple look, triple toe loop. Now that's guts. And his artistry, his spins, his footwork, everything is firing on another level. He has more stretch, more flexibility than any skater really in the world of skating today. It's the best skate of his life. The underdog, the guy who wasn't even in the media guide, 
two judges give him a perfect score. I look down and I see the, the 6.0s and you saw I, the computer showed that I won. It was just like, I was, it was like crazy. There is no one in their seats at this point. Holy, that is sensational. What a triumph. Against all odds, Rudy Galindo becomes the first openly gay U.S. national champion. And what makes this win all the more amazing is not just his sexuality, but also that Rudy wins by skating in a very effeminate style. He's not what the establishment says a men's champion is supposed to look like. His choreography, it's over-the-top dramatic. He's unafraid to arch his back or extend his leg in a feminine way. His hand movements, they are super exaggerated. His whole energy is just extremely queer. I mean, he's skating to Swan Lake. So if Rudy did all these things that the judges and officials and the rest of the skating establishment didn't want him to do, how did he still manage to take the top spot? Because on the night, Rudy was that good. He was undeniable. I mean, I think he he didn't really give them a choice. He was like, I am the best. I'm beautiful. I'm <laughs> perfect. And I'm going to win this, you know? And I, I mean... Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy he, he was rewarded for what he put out there. As Derek Delmore remembers, Rudy shattered multiple glass ceilings with his win. Besides the fact that he was like, through his skating, was trying to let everybody know, hey, I'm queer. <laughs> um, like, you know, he was Mexican-American as well. Um, and then also, you know, he didn't come from a lot of privilege. And once you start kind of breaking it all down, like it was, it was already just amazing that performance in general, that was already amazing. Then you start like layering and like, you know, all these other attributes that he has, all these other characteristics, all these other qualities, all these things that makes Rudy, Rudy. Um, and then you're like, wow, like, wow, he really, he really did that. The culture of figure skating is so deeply rooted in the image of the rich, white, European aristocrats that started the sport. So Rudy, an openly gay, effeminate person of color who didn't come from means, his win is groundbreaking on so many levels. And even after retiring, Rudy keeps showing that things didn't have to be the way that they were in the past. When Rudy discovered he was HIV positive, he didn't give in to that culture of silence we heard about in the last episode by winning the national title. When I found out that I was HIV positive, I could go and, and do speaking engagements about my disease and, and help people. And I've gotten thousands of letters saying how I've helped them be themselves, coming out to their friends, coworkers, uh, family, and uh, learning to uh, live with um, being HIV positive. Even after his competitive career, when Rudy's touring in ice shows, he still has that streak of being unapologetically himself. Maybe more than ever. We're talking Rudy skating with a rainbow flag, quite literally bringing the term friend of Dorothy to life. A program set to the village people, dressed in a sailor costume. I mean, so, so gay. And I'm like, okay, you know, I could start out with a, a Navy costume and then strip down to like YMCA. So I just thought it'd be fun to play on my sexuality and, you know, and just have fun. And the crowd ate it up, including me. Rudy Galindo was one of my childhood idols. I'm pretty sure I have his autograph in my childhood bedroom somewhere. I will 
Never, ever forget seeing Rudy live on tour after he won nationals. The music and costumes he chose, the way he skated, it was all just so amazingly, openly, proudly gay. Great skater, great entertainer, Rudy Galindo. (laughs) You know, Chris, thinking about you as a young queer skater, I... I can only imagine just what a positive impact seeing Rudy in the way he was received must have had on you. You know, the thing is, it's it's really complicated. Like, this was the kind of person I wanted to be, right? But while the crowd seemed to love it, give him huge cheers and laughs, I got the sense that some people were laughing for the wrong reasons. I think there was a huge portion of people that were laughing at him about it. And um, th- that was something that really, really left a mark on me as a as a queer person where you're just kind of have insecurity about fully sticking your neck out there. This is Elliot Halverson, who's around my age and was also an up and coming skater in the late 90s. And as kids, we saw the way that some people in the skating world talked about Rudy. To those people, he was just a punchline. Like, ugh, can you believe how gay he is? Can't that flamer tone it down? And as a kid, it was a signal that if you're out loudly in that way, this is how people will talk about you too. He was this Latin effeminate person who was not afraid to wear more sparkles than the girls. And those were things that I was very connected to and knew that I was similar with with him. And I knew how people snickered and how people laughed and people talking negatively behind your back and laughing at you was like pretty much my worst fear and I wanted to be liked by everybody and and I knew what the path was going to look like and it was terrifying. So Rudy Galindo succeeded, won this huge title, did it in his own way, had a successful touring career and did it all while refusing to conform, which is what you and Elliot and some other young skaters were identifying with, and why it hurt all the more when you saw the way that some people talked about him. And the next time a skater was as loud and open as Rudy, he got more pushback than you could imagine. That's after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was like a known thing that like he was going, if he was going to win, he was not going to have to just win by like 
a little mm-hmm. bit. Like in order for him to win, there was a higher level of expectation for him to be able to succeed than it would have been for someone who was either closeted or heteronormative. This is Tim Gable. Tim was the junior national champion in 1996, the same year Rudy Galinda won the U.S. title. For Tim, as a young closeted skater, watching Rudy skate to victory as a proud, openly gay man was a seminal moment. But as Tim made his way up the senior ranks over the next few years, the culture didn't seem to change. I can't point to like a particular official or judge or even coach for that matter, but it was something that was just known that was like, if you are gay or you, you know, you might be on that spectrum, like you have to keep it quiet or you won't be successful. You know, Chris, I was just thinking, when we heard about Rudy Galindo's historic win before the break, you said that it happened on a night when Rudy was absolutely perfect, giving the judges no opportunity to place him second. And I guess I can understand how a closeted skater might have looked at it as a one-off moment versus a sign of what was to come. I mean, for someone like Tim Gable, that was the fear. If he came out, would he have to count on being absolutely perfect in every skate for the rest of his career? I mean, skating is a sport where you live or die by tenths of a point. For Tim, a skater who was just peaking in his career, there was just too much at stake. When it came to his identity as a skater, the way Tim saw it? My kind of mindset was never give, a re- never give someone a reason to work against you. In 2002, Tim made it to the Olympics in Salt Lake City, an achievement Rudy Galindo never attained. And not just that, but he won the bronze. But for Tim, the idea of coming out? Um, it, no one was ready. I wasn't ready. I can tell you for certain I wasn't going to like get up on my Olympic press conference and be like, oh, and by the way, I'm gay. Like that mm-hmm. would not have been a thing. Um, my coach probably would have ripped the microphone out of my hand. Who knows? Um, but it would not have gone over well. It would have been career-wise a complete disaster. Even though Tim Gable isn't being explicitly told, we like you because you're straight passing or being gay will hurt you. The messaging was there that it could hurt him. I was never going to do or say anything publicly or in a broad audience that would potentially hinder my ability to continue to achieve athletically. There is always something subjective and there is always room for people to work against you if they feel you're undeserving because of any particular reason. You, you feel like you always have to be on. You never you can never let your guard down. You can never have like a bad day. And, that, and that's not even just like the gay versus straight, but it's just like being elite in an individual sport that is judged like the expectations are very high you know it's it is exhausting it is exhausting chris you were starting to compete at the national level around this time late 90s early 2000s so I really would love to know, like, how much of Tim Gable's experience resonates with you? Like, were these also the same kind of calculations that you were making? Absolutely. As much as people think of figure skating as a sport of self-expression, 
succeeding in the sport often means conforming to a style of performance that will get you the highest score. So what did that actually look like for you on the ice? For me, as a male pairs figure skater, it meant toning down my expressiveness. Like, I once had a judge tell me that he could see too much effort on my face. So I guess while I'm lifting my sister over my head with one arm, I'm supposed to show nothing on my face because I'm such a strong man. I had to work on training myself to become a sort of restrained, emotionally stoic pillar of masculine strength. But like in the privacy of my bedroom, I could totally nail Britney Spears's Oops, I Did It Again choreography by heart. But I also knew that's not a thing I'd ever be allowed to do on the ice. Chris, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it sounds like for you, there were always reminders that there would be pushback if you stepped outside the lines and that a lot of your focus was just on how to make yourself as neutral as possible. Well, you know, when I was starting to compete, there was this new trend on the rise and it wasn't just being neutral. It it seemed like there was room for male skaters to be expressive and win praise for it if they expressed themselves in one very particular way. Meet Elvis Stoiko. This defending two-time world champion never attempts to conceal his wild streak. I don't think every person's body could handle the workout that Michael Weiss can handle. Well, Christopher Bowman set out to make men's skating sizzle. I ran around town with all sorts of women. <laughs> He's a tough, independent competitor, prefers a more athletic, non-traditional approach. While skaters like me and Tim Gable were trying to stay under the radar, other guys were kicking it into overdrive, ushering in figure skating's macho moment. Skaters like Michael Weiss, Chris Bowman, and Elvis Stoiko were just some of the skaters in the 90s and aughts who were singled out as bringing masculinity to skating. And being masculine, that's not inherently a negative thing. But the way the press and the commentators and the media latched onto the macho narrative, you can't help but feel it's an implicit judgment of how everyone else is skating. Okay, so I did some digging and I found a number of articles from around this time, like these trend pieces about skating's macho moment. And you're totally right. Like there were all these stories where skaters were called stuff like tastefully masculine and more macho than the average skater. Oh my God, I, I had blocked these from my memory. Well, I've got a couple excerpts here I wanna read to you from these pieces. One of the first articles I've got here, this is uh, one of the skaters you mentioned, Chris Bowman. There was this LA Times piece about him where it said, there are so many stories about Bowman's rampant heterosexuality that no one would even bother to ask if he is a homosexual. Rampant heterosexuality, like it's a wildfire or something. Someone call the fire department or this rampant heterosexuality might consume the whole city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and of all the stories I came across, there was this one article that's like just really next level. It's an article from the San Francisco Chronicle called Men Dump Sequins, Try More Macho Style. Uh, <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Not a joke. And here's what it said about the medalists at the 1992 World Championships. On the top step was Victor Petrenko, who's ending a well-documented career as a ladies' man with his impending marriage. Next, 
There's macho Kurt Browning, a Canadian heartthrob who became so annoyed with his costume during the short program that he ripped part of it off and tossed it onto the ice. And finally, in third, was a karate-kicking, motorcycle-racing Elvis Stoiko. I cannot believe that's real, but also, like, I can. Because it really did just become this narrative that was everywhere. And hearing it growing up, the coded message underneath was so clear. It was like, can you believe this figure skater is straight? Good for him. And it's really that last name you mentioned, Elvis Stoiko, who kind of becomes the face of this masculine skating movement. So Elvis Stoiko was this Canadian skater in the 90s who was a cis hetero man. And he really amped the volume all the way up. Again, Elliot Halverson, who we heard from before the break. Elliot was a juvenile-level skater at the time and, like me, could read between the lines of what the macho narrative really meant. My assertion is that it, is in, it was in retaliation to the queer label that he was afraid of being put on him because he saw it being put on skating. So kind of this like, okay, well, uh, y'all might be fairies, but I'm over here doing karate. So like, I'm clearly not a part of that crowd. And I am this kind of skater. But the thing is, it wasn't just the macho skaters. It wasn't just the media praise. But even the skating establishment was pushing this pro-masculine kind of homophobic sentiment. There are lots of queer people in skating, but it's not everybody. And so... The people that aren't, they are very conscious of this assumption that everybody's gay. And so I, I read it as this reaction, which is to try to keep that queer label as far as possible because it's not true. And then the whole structure of U.S. figure skating really acts in accordance with that. And the girls are supposed to be the white, skinny, young ice princess, and the boys are supposed to be the powerful, masculine athletes. So they they want it to be that, and so this queer label doesn't fit that, and so they want to try to keep it at a distance at all costs. Well, to Elliot's point, there's another article I found, an issue of Skating Magazine from around this time, where the president of U.S. Figure Skating said, quote, Participation by young men in our sport has not increased. A great deal of this problem is due to a mixed image that our sport has with regard to male skaters. The elimination of men receiving flowers on the podium should help considerably. Athleticism in the sport must be stressed. So, if you look at enrollment numbers from U.S. figure skating, you'll see that at every age women outnumber men. But by the time skaters reach their teens, women outnumber men 10 to 1. And I think the figure skating establishment was scared that if the sport seemed queer, boys wouldn't want to do it. And that putting a spotlight on macho skaters would get more boys to sign up for skating classes. Which, of course, is ridiculous. You could put boys in helmets and football pads, and people would still call them gay for figure skating. Like Mary Louise Adams said on our last episode, no amazing male skater has ever been capable of changing the reputation of the sport. And this macho phase in skating, this effort to change the perception of the sport, it's followed by a new face in skating who is queer as hell. Johnny Weir. Johnny Weir. Johnny Weir. Johnny Weir, he's larger than life. Johnny Weir. 
Johnny Weir is one of the most naturally gifted skaters I've ever seen. Even though he started at age 12, he had a meteoric rise through the sport in the 2000s, qualifying for national championships just a few years after he first stepped on the ice. Johnny eventually became a three-time US champion, a world medalist, and a two-time Olympian. But his athletic achievements were often overshadowed by something else. There's this figure skater. He's a flamboyant guy. He's an American. His name is Johnny Weir. Johnny Weir, the very flamboyant Johnny Weir. He is flamboyant. Known for his flamboyant style, wild outfits, and now reality show. You know, my figure skating knowledge is very limited, but even I remember all of this flamboyant talk happening around Johnny when I was growing up. It was always the word, that one word, that came up when people talked about him on TV. And, by the way, it's true. He, he's very flamboyant. But the way people threw that word around, sometimes the way he was talked about, I remember a lot of eye rolling. It was the skating equivalent of when people get homophobic about pride parades, saying stuff like, you know, I have no problem with gay people, but do they have to throw it in our faces like that? Johnny Weir, um, no one likes a gay minstrel show. I'm sorry, I don't need to see a prima ballerina on the ice. Of course you wanted to see what Johnny Weir was wearing, and it's a bustier. That's what those <laughs> lace, go, this pink lace is sort of holding together. Yeah, Johnny Weir wearing an outfit that's unforgettable, truly, after your local news. You can hear in those clips, some are outright mean. But for some, there's also this, like, snickering undertone, and kind of like what Elliot and I said about how people treated Rudy, it feels like it's laughing at Johnny, not with him. I remember the time this sense in the sport of, oh God, there goes Johnny again. He just refused to play the game in the way previous generations of gay skaters had. And what happens next is the kind of everything we've been talking about in this episode, these two camps of praising masculine skaters and effeminate skaters getting pushback, it really culminates in this narrative that gets played out in the media about Johnny and this other skater, Evan Lysacek. And the clashes between Johnny Weir and Evan Lysacek have become rather compelling. The two skaters, with their contrasting skating styles and obviously incompatible personalities, have made it clear that this rivalry is anything but a friendly one. Throughout their whole careers, even as juniors, Johnny and Evan are always neck and neck, vying it out for the top spot. And through the 2000s, the TV coverage and the press around them, it becomes about, well, how do you separate them? How do you distinguish the two? And there's all this focus on their gender expressions. It wasn't that there wasn't a rivalry. There definitely was. And by all accounts, they do not get along. But for all the obsession with Johnny's effeminacy, the obsession with Evan Lysacek's masculinity and contrasting the two is equally prominent. Well, Chris, I have got another article here to share that I think illustrates exactly what you're talking about. It's a 2008 New York Times story called Figure Skating Rivalry Pits Athleticism Against Artistry. Well, there's those two words, athletic and artistic, that are so often stand-ins for masculine and feminine and straight and gay. Yeah, and immediately that's so clearly what this piece is all about. Here's how it starts. One stands... Six feet, two inches, wears panther black and dates ESPN's hottest female athlete. The other weighs an avian 125 pounds, favors sequined swan outfits, and coyly brushes off patter about his sexuality. The story goes on to say, quote, 
in the normally placid enclave of figure skating, supporting either Evan Lysacek the athlete or Johnny Weir the artist, has become a virtual referendum on matters from skating style and personal style to sexuality itself. And here's the other thing. For that New York Times story to call the chatter around Johnny and Evan a referendum on sexuality is really interesting because Johnny Weir did not come out as gay until 2011, after retiring. And yet, it's this big presumption everyone's making, everyone's talking about, even though Johnny doesn't want to. Here's Johnny being asked about his sexuality in 2009, before coming out. You, what, what, what is your, your general thought on revealing your, your sexuality, whether it is what it is, or whether well, it's I mean, what, business, or... What's important about it? Um, I think people get, people are interested in... Think, are people titillated by it? I, see, with that kind of thing also, I don't see the importance of revealing anything about yourself. <laughs> I mean, there are lots of things that make up Johnny Weir that people don't ask. And then there was this whole controversy with Stars on Ice, where Johnny's told he's not invited to go on the pro tour after the 2010 Olympics. And the CNN headline is, Ice Tour denies snubbing Johnny Weir over sexual orientation. Again, before Johnny ever came out. And it's true. It was obvious that Johnny was queer. For all of us in the sport, his sexuality was an open secret. But I don't think the mainstream media would make these presumptions and ask these questions to a closeted person's face today. Johnny makes it clear he doesn't want to talk about it, and still these reporters keep asking. Can you blame him for not trusting these people to handle his coming out well? You know, Chris, hearing about Johnny is really making me think about what exactly it means to be quote-unquote out. Because Johnny wasn't out only insofar as he didn't say, I am a gay man, until retiring. But he was, without a doubt, a symbol of individuality and queerness throughout his whole career. When we're talking about influence and legacy, I don't think Johnny saying, I am gay, would have changed the impact he had on, say, little kids who saw themselves in Johnny when they watched him on TV dressed like a swan. Obviously, everyone has a different journey to coming out that can't always be rushed. And I think the most important thing, like we heard about Rudy, is being yourself on the public stage. I don't think there's any doubt that Johnny was, is, and has always been himself. When you are just being Johnny, we're going to the dry cleaner, to the bank, <laughs> stopping to get something to eat. Are you still the same type of persona that you portray in a public forum? Absolutely. Giant fur, big sunglasses, <laughs> purse most of the time, some pointy shoes. Um. So this is you. The people that think <laughs> that's him just trying to act outrageous on the ice, you're just being yourself. Exactly, and that's the, only, that's the only way I can be. And there's a lot of bravery in that. You can never know for sure in skating, but with Johnny Weir, there were always questions about whether he was getting scored fairly. It's possible he didn't get to reach the full heights he could have in his career. I mean, he never won a world title and never won an Olympic medal. But no matter what the results were, at least he did it all his way. And literally, in perfect Johnny fashion, skated at the Olympics to, what else? My way. So there was Rudy Galindo and Johnny Weir, both pushing against what was expected of them, both unafraid to be themselves in the spotlight, 
And still, the next generation, you and Elliot, weren't feeling like skating was a safe space to be yourself. So what was it going to take for that to change? Next time on Blind Landing, a Russian human rights crisis, a fender bender at a coffee bean, and Adam Rippon's shoulders. And I remember thinking, like, I have nothing to lose. Like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm not going to go to the Olympics? I've already not done that my whole life. So, like, who cares if I don't go to the Olympics? That's next time on the third and final part of Out on the Ice, a story from Blind Landing. Blind Landing is a completely independent podcast made by a very small group of public radio reporters in our free time on our own dime. We all have full-time jobs and work on the podcast on nights and weekends. So I know every podcast asks for these things, but if you want to support this podcast and support independent journalism, there are three really simple ways you can do that. First, by sharing a link to the show on social media and writing a few nice words. Second, by leaving us a five-star rating or writing a review on whatever app you're listening to this on. Or third, by dropping us a few bucks in our virtual tip jar at linktree.com slash blindlanding. We have a link to it on our website and on our Twitter and Instagram too. Thanks for listening. <laughs>